First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. First Samuel chapter 21. Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women, And David answered the priest, Truly, women have been kept from us, as always, when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord, to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another and hymn and dances? Saul has struck his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Chapter 22. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them. And there were with him about four hundred men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you, till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Now Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, that all of you have conspired against me? 
No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him, and gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house. The priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, Lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword, and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait, as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard, and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You, turn and strike the priest. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priest, and he killed on that day eighty-five persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priest, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day, when Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me, do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. For they are in hot pursuit. I did nothing to deserve this, God. They're constantly watching, hoping to take my life. You've kept track of my every toss and turn through the sleepless nights. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. I'm thanking you, God. Out loud in the streets, you've been a safe place for me, a good place to hide. I can always count on you. Thank you, Robin and Rebecca, for reading that passage. Good morning. It really is a privilege to open God's Word with you today. And for the past year, Pastor Scott has been walking us through the book of 1 Samuel uh, in a verse-by-verse fashion. And what a joy it's been uh, to walk this wonderful portion of Scripture. Well, this morning we find ourselves more than halfway through the book of 1 Samuel. And when Pastor Scott asked me to preach on this particular passage, I went home and asked my neighbor if he would read this portion of Scripture with me. And when we were done, he turned to me and said, Now, what in the world are you going to say about that? (laughs) I was thinking, I have no idea. But thankfully, in my little despair of situation, the Lord quickly brought to my memory 
uh, the words of the Apostle Paul that encouraged Timothy, that all of Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So therefore, I trust that the Lord has a message for each one of us this morning. Let's begin our time with a word of prayer. Father, I ask you now that the Spirit would help us hear the Lord's voice this morning. We ask that the Holy Spirit would would use this text in a mighty way and that he would help and apply it to our lives. I pray if there might be some here today who are brokenhearted or in a state of despair like David, that this word would cause them to have confidence and hope in your character. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. I want to start this morning by just re-walking through these 40 verses, and then I want to close our time by examining two attributes of God that are on display in this text. It's my prayer that what we'll discover together will provide us with hope when we face times of desperation as David was in. So if you have your Bibles, open with me to 1 Samuel chapter 21. Chapter, one, or chapter 21 begins with David on the run. He really isn't in, he's not in a good spot in life. Uh, he's in a state of desperation. As we've seen now for a couple weeks, King Saul's after him. King Saul wants him six feet under. So therefore, David's forced to run. And, you know, he has to leave behind, as we saw last week, his best friend, Jonathan. And he's left behind, you know, already the prophet Samuel, his encourager. He's also left behind his wife, Michael. All he has left really is the shirt on his back. And when we left last week, David was in tears. He was crying as he departed from Jonathan. And now we turn to chapter 21, and David enters the city, the city of Nob, with swollen eyes. This is the first stop, the city of Nob. At this time in Israel history, Nob was the place that the tabernacle resided. It was about a mile uh, north of Jerusalem and maybe two miles south of Saul's hometown in Gibeah. And so David comes to Nob to visit one of his spiritual advisors uh, named Ahimelech, the priest. But now David's not here for counseling alone. The text informs us that David came to secure protection and food because he's unarmed. Ahimelech, the the priest, though, he smells something's not right. In verse 1, he tells us that he is trembling when David shows up. The priest was wondering, why would David be alone? That's what he says. I mean, this is David. Where where is his entourage? Where's all his people? Uh, Someone of David's royal status would certainly have a bodyguard with him. So in order to put the, the trembling priest at ease, David makes up a fictitious story. In verse 2, he says, he tells the priest that he's on a highly sensitive government mission. Uh, This is a top secret mission, and that's why he's all alone, although he does claim to have some younger men in hiding nearby. In verse 3, David asks the priest for some food. However, there's a slight problem. The only food in the tabernacle's food pantry was the bread of presence, and this particular bread was only to be eaten by the priest's and after the expiration date of seven days. According to Leviticus 24, every Sabbath, the priest was to exchange 12 old loaves of bread with fresh loaves of bread. Uh, These loaves were to be set out on a table in in the holy place, and the bread of presence was there to be a symbol that the Lord sustains his people and supplies for their need. Well, in verse 4, Ahimelech makes an exception for David uh, and his men. As long as they have kept themselves 
ritually clean. Uh, he informs David that him and his men can have the bread just so as long as they have met a minimum requirement that they have kept themselves from women. Ahimelech asks this question because in the Leviticus Holiness Code, the loss of any bodily fluid was a considered a sign of uncleanliness. Well, David answers and says, well, even on ordinary missions, we keep ourselves from women, so how much more on this special mission? And so the priest gives David the bread because he meets the qualification. In verse 7, though, the camera kind of turns from David and Ahimelech to a different man, the man called Doeg. The, this foreigner was Saul's chief herdsman, and he just happened to be detained in the tabernacle that day and to witness their conversation. And the narrator wants you to feel something's wrong. It's like he wants you to see the sign, beware of the Doegs. It's interesting because the name Doeg sounds very similar to the Hebrew word da'og, which we translate as worry. The, reader, or the narrator wants the reader to be worried about this man. Well, in verse 8, the camera turns back to David's dialogue with the priest. It's here that David's story gets a little fishy, though. He tells the priest he was in such a hurry from King Saul that he didn't bring any weapons with him. Uh, he has nothing to defend himself. He says, is there by any chance you have a weapon on hand? You know, if I was Ahimelech, I might be like, aren't you the guy who killed like your tens of thousands? How do you not have a weapon? But Elimelech says, yes, indeed, there is. Uh, there's a sword here, and it's none other than Goliath's sword, the giant whom you killed. David replies, that, that'll do just fine. I'll take that. And having accomplished his errand, David does not linger. It's interesting, though, when we first met David, David relies solely on God's strength. But now he's delighted to receive the weapon of his former enemy. It just serves to highlight the state that David's in of fear and desperation. At this point, in verse 10, the narrator takes us to David's second stop, the city of Gath. You know, verse 10 is one of those sentences in the Bible when you, when you read it, you question yourself, did, did I read that right? Remember, Gath is a Philistine city some 30 miles west to, to the west, and it just so happens that Gath is Goliath's hometown. Why in the world would David be walking into Gath, seeking refuge, carrying none other than Goliath's sword? I'd have to admit, I, you know, I'm not much of a turkey hunter. I've been at it for three years and yet to pull the trigger on the turkey. But what David does here in verse 10 would be equivalent to a turkey walking right up into my lap seeking shade under the same tree that I'm using for camouflage. I mean, it just makes no sense. David was walking right into the enemy's front door. You know, a lot of commentators debate why would David do this? Uh, why would he make such a risky move? It's possible that David did it because he thought, well, Saul surely wouldn't come looking for me here, which is probably true. It's also possible that King Achish would have known that David's now Saul's enemy and therefore would welcome him. Whatever the reason, this choice of destination indicates just how desperate David was. When Gath is David's best option, you know he's in big trouble. Unfortunately for David, and to no real surprise, those in Gath knew exactly who he was. He was too well known to just go around incognito. He was not wanted there. Maybe David had forgotten about the 200 Philistine foreskins he brought to Saul in order to marry Michael, but the people of Gath had not. The narrator in verse 11 
lets us know that those in Gath also had access to Z8.3 or Israel's version of it. They were familiar with the number one hit song in the land. You know, they knew that legendary David had slain his tens of thousands. Not only that, the text says they had their own dance for it. And I may note that uh, most of those 10,000 plus victims that David killed, which the song references, those just happened to be former residents of Gath. I'm no rocket scientist, but I can say with confidence, coming to Gath was not a smart move by David, especially, when, especially since his face were on most of the billboards in Israel. The phrase, in their hands, in verse 13, seems to indicate that David was taken into their custody. Basically, he was under arrest in Gath. And so, obviously, according to verse 12, David becomes very much afraid. And so he becomes quite the actor. He does so well at acting that he was nominated for the Academy Award of Best Actor that year. He puts on quite the show, to say the least. He acts as if he's gone insane. He becomes a constant drooler and a graffiti artist. Uh, he, he, uh, apparently, his artwork was more than the Parks and Recreation Department wanted to deal with. One commentator, though, makes a sad observation here. He says, The man who stood calmly before Goliath because he was possessed with faith now acts like a maniac because he's possessed with fear. The only positive thing I can say about uh, David's desperate act was that it worked. According to verses 15 and 16, King Achish lets his servant uh, Servants of Gath know that the insane asylum is at max capacity and they don't need any more occupants. So David was permitted to go slobbering on his way. And this takes us to chapter 22 and to David's third stop, the cave of Adullam. David seeks refuge in this cave about 12 miles east of Gath. Apparently, words got out to David's immediate family members, maybe via AOL Instant Messenger or some other you know, outdated method of communication, that David had come to this cave. Most likely David was fearful of what, sorry, David's parents and family was fearful of what King Saul might do to them because of their relationship with David. However, they're not the only ones that show up to the cave. Uh, the text tells us that along with David's family came a motley crew of about 400 men. These were no ordinary men. These were the kind of men that Flynn Ryder takes Rapunzel to meet at the Snuggly Duckling restaurant. The text says they're in distress, in debt, and bitter. What a raw group David gets to lead. Apparently, though, David is in a better mindset now. He's, he's got his wits back uh, together, and so he decides the cave is not the best place for his parents to host his parents. You know, 1 Samuel 17, 12 tells us that at this time, Jesse, his father, has gotten pretty old, and he'd have no business being on the cross-country team running from Saul. Uh, that coupled with those who were around David, the social riffraff and ragtag comrades, David decides to take his parents elsewhere. So in verse 3, David leaves the cave and proceeds to the fourth stop, the city of Mitzpah. David goes straight to king of Moab, and he asks permission for temporary lodging for his parents. Unlike king Saul and king Achish, the king of Moab comes to David's aid. His parents are allowed to, to lodge at the Royal Marriott and Mitzvah for an extended amount of time. And now in verse 5, we are informed of an unknown prophet named Gad, which gives David a prophetic word. He tells David where to go next, and David obeys and ends up in the forest. At face value, this verse 5 seems kind of random and insignificant, but it does show us that God is still giving David direction and guidance. 
Now in chapter 23, verse 6, the spotlight turns from focusing on David to focusing on Paul, or sorry, Saul. And that takes us to our fifth and final stop, the city of Gibeah. Here in Gibeah, King Saul is conducting somewhat of a royal pity party under a tree with his spear in hand. Just as a side note, even though I know he was king in the land, I'm not too sure Saul would have made Israel's Olympic javelin toss team, at least not for accuracy. You know, at this point in the narrative, he is, after all, 0 for 4 when it comes to hitting his target. Anyways, according to verse 6, Saul is with his inner circle of servants, and he, he's informed on the ancient version of Instagram or whatever they had that David now has followers. And this makes Saul very angry. Verses 7 and 8 indicate that Saul believes his servants have entered into some kind of conspiracy against him. Saul thinks that, that those around him are withholding intelligence about a secret pact that his son Jonathan made with David, and his servants are just remaining silent about the matter. I think it's important to note you know, just how jealous Saul is of David. He doesn't even use David's name anymore. He just calls him the son of Jesse. You can almost sense his jealousy in verse 7 when he asks the rhetorical questions of his servants. You don't think that the son of Jesse will give you the good government jobs and the perks that I've given you, do you? Saul has become obsessed with thoughts about his rival, David. And as Saul throws his adult temper tantrum to all his servants, they remain silent. That is all but one, the man Doeg, the Edomite. Remember him from chapter 21? He was the one lurking in the background who saw David talking to the priest in Nob. Well, in verse 9, Doeg sees a golden opportunity to impress the king. He, he uh, tells the king of what he saw that day in Nob. He tells the king about the bread, the sword, all of it. Of course, this makes Saul even more furious and mad. So in verse 11, Saul summons not just Ahimelech, the priest, but all the priests who were working in the tabernacle. This would have been Elimelech's immediate family members and relatives. But I think it's also significant to note that Saul doesn't care about God's word anymore or God's law. He's so morally broken that he ignores the fact that you can't bring a charge against someone on the basis of a single witness. But Saul doesn't care about God's ways, so he calls for the priest. Ahimelech, the priest, arrives on the scene and he probably isn't sure why he's been invited to see the king. But however, in verse 13, Saul lets him know why. He tells him about his conspiracy theory. He believes that everyone is against him by aiding David. And then verse 14 and 15, Elimelech responds with a series of rhetorical questions. They can be summarized something like this. Of course I help David. Isn't he your son-in-law? And doesn't he have the best reputation of any of your workers? Of course I gave him counsel. I've done that regularly over all the years. Where are you getting all this conspiracy nonsense from anyways, King Saul? And he tells Saul plainly, I've known nothing of this, much or little. Well, in verse 16, Saul's not buying it. He doesn't care if Elimelech is sincerely telling the truth. He's heard enough. He sees Elimelech's response as confession of treason. Saul's heart has become so evil he wants the death of all of Priestville. King Saul wants not just Himelech, but the whole priesthood exterminated. So he turns to those around him, and he, 
and he wants to carry out bloodshed, but none of his servants, none of his servants can stomach the job of killing innocent priests. I mean, who wants to kill a priest? It's one thing to kill an enemy in war, but killing your hometown priest, that's a whole other story. But in verse 18, we read about one who's willing to do the king's dirty work. Remember, I told you, beware of the Doegs. Doeg the Edomite apparently has no problem wiping out the priesthood. Sadly, he is a bloodthirsty man. He not only kills all 85 priests there that day, he then goes to their hometown, Nob, and mass murders all the remaining men, women, children, and babies, and animals. Verse 19 is a dark text in the Bible. It just seems so unjust. Both King Saul and Doeg are responsible for a heinous evil. They have committed genocide. But there is a small ray of sunshine that comes from this dark story. In verse 20, we read about a young priest who was able to escape and find his way to David. His name is Abiathar. He spills the tragic news of David and finds refuge with David. This heartbreaking news to David, this is heartbreaking news. And in verse 22, David seems like he feels somewhat responsible for the death of Abiathar's relatives. However, there is another thing for sure. Abiathar's presence would be visible proof to all those who were following David that God was on David's side. The only temple priest left in Israel is now in David's camp. These final verses, in these final verses, there's a stark contrast between King Saul and David. Saul pronounces death on the priest, and David becomes the protector and preserver of the priest. Saul is becoming more and more isolated. He's in the process of losing everything. He's already pushed away his son, and now he's exterminated all the priests. And in doing so, he's probably lost a lot of the respect of his servants. David, on the other hand, is gaining followers, and people keep fleeing to him. My, 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 how the tables are beginning to turn. Well, that is a summary of chapters 21 and, and 22, but the big question still remains. What does this story have to do with our lives? In other words, what does this Old, Old Testament narrative teach us about ourselves and about God? As I thought through this text over and over and wrestled with it, I believe it teaches multiple lessons about God's character that will prove to be helpful when we find ourselves in desperate times like David. This morning, I want to examine two attributes of God that will provide us with hope and confidence in times of despair and desperation, the kind of despair and desperation that David himself found himself in. The first attribute I want to examine is God's mercy. Remembering God's mercy will provide us with hope in times of desperation. In our passage, I'm sure there's more, but I want to just point out three ways I see God's mercy in this text. The first way I see God's mercy on display was in the five loaves of bread. Let me explain. In the opening scene, David, as we talked about, comes to Elimelech, the priest, looking for food. However, I didn't draw much attention to it, but David's not telling the truth. He's not really on a secret mission from Saul. Rather, he's fleeing from Saul. This is a pretty low point for David, if you think about it. Here's David standing in the temple of God, talking to a priest of the Lord, and he's lying. You know, and, and David's lying to the priest right standing in the tabernacle. But please don't miss this. Despite his deception and his finagling, the Lord was merciful to sustain David with holy bread. 
In this story, despite the lies, the holy bread becomes David's daily bread. I do want to point out that Elimelech was not wrong in giving the bread either. In the New Testament, Jesus actually endorses the action taken by the priest. In Matthew 12, uh, you know, Jesus' disciples were picking heads of grain on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees challenged them uh, because they said, you can't do that on the Sabbath. Technically, it was unlawful. But Jesus basically replies back to the Pharisees and says, have you never read uh, the story of David and Elimelech in, in 1 Samuel chapter 21? Have you, you, didn't read, you didn't read how Elimelech gave David bread? Jesus lets the Pharisees know that unlike them, Elimelech actually understood and applied the scripture that God desires mercy and not sacrifice. In other words, Elimelech fulfilled the intent of the law by his act of compassion and mercy. Still, some might object that David doesn't deserve this provision of food because he was deceitful in his story to the priests. My question to those kinds of people would be, who would have daily bread if it always required perfect obedience to God? We'd all be skeletons. We receive our daily bread and provisions not because we are godly, but because God is merciful and gracious to us. This is not to say that the text justifies David's conduct. It only cares to report it. But what we do need to learn from this passage is that God is merciful to provide his desperate servants even in spite of their conduct. That is because God is a God of mercy. Second, I see God's mercy on display in the backside of a city limit sign. Let me explain this one. When David was in the city of Gath, the Philistine city, he acted like a literal fool. And yet God was merciful to deliver him. If you ask me, it was like David was like a cow walking into a processing plant, and yet God made it a way for him to exit the city. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that the text implies that when we find ourselves in a desperate situation like David was in, that we should act as if we'd gone insane. But what the text does teach us and should teach us is that we should never forget God's mercy given to us, even in our foolishness. I am sure that as David passed the city limit sign on his way out of Gath, there was a sigh of relief and thankfulness for God's mercy. In fact, in Psalms 34, 18, David writes, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. You know, what I think is really interesting about that verse is you have to read the subtitles of the Psalms. The subtitle of Psalm 34 says, Of David, when he changed his behavior before the king so that he drove him out and went away. You see, David wrote Psalm 34 this, in this very moment of his life when he temporarily resided in Gath. He understood that God had been merciful to be near to him and to save him in his desperate, brokenhearted condition. This story provides us with great hope because it teaches us that even in our most desperate times in life, our times of desperation, that the Lord does not let any of his servants go, even in our foolishness. And finally, I see God's mercy on display in in one sentence, a sentence where David gets a prophetic word. In our text, there was a single verse that described a passing reference to the prophet Gad who visits David. It was merciful of God to give David a prophetic word. This one sentence from Gad let David know that the Lord was still with him. You know, it's never fun to be in a state of desperation. But to be in that state without being able to hear the God's voice, that's unbearable. You know, this past week, my wife was telling me a story about a book she's reading. The book's called The Hiding Place. The book speaks about the life of 
Corrie Ten Boom, a Christian woman who suffered because she aided Jews against the Nazis? Well, the particular story that my wife shared with me was about the time Corrie and her sister were captured and put into a concentration camp. And the particular barrack that they were given uh, had so many fleas that none of the Nazi guards wanted, wanted to or dared to even enter their barrack. At first, the situation almost seemed unbearable. But they would find out later that it was because of the fleas that the sisters were able to hide the Bible without the guards ever finding it. The particular circumstance they were in enabled them to carry on Bible studies in their sleeping quarters without ever getting caught. Thus, the sisters thanked God for the fleas because it gave them access to hear from the Lord in their desperation. Thankfully, God has given all of us, his people, like Miss Ten Boom, the Bible so that we can still hear the shepherd's voice. Romans 15, 4, Paul writes, For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of Scripture, we might have hope. In David's despair, the prophet's voice provided him with great hope to realize the Lord was with him and still speaking to him. We too have been given the same mercy. We have the ability to hear the Lord's voice from Scripture no matter whatever situation we find ourselves in. The point is, is that God's character is merciful. And when we find ourselves in desperate times, we, have, we can have hope because He is merciful. God upholds His desperate people. Sometimes His mercy comes in less than obvious ways like five loaves of bread or the backside of a city limit sign or a prophetic word. But this passage teaches us we should have hope in our desperate times because God is a God of mercy. The second attribute I want to examine is God's providence. Remembering God's providence will provide us with confidence in times of desperation. When I say God's providence, I'm talking about the idea that God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he directs them to fulfill his purposes. Again, there's probably more, but I just want to point out just three ways I see God's providence at work in our text. The first way I see God's providence on display is not so obvious. God's providence was at work in developing David as a leader. In our text, there's a passing reference to some social outcast who were fleeing to David in the cave. Chapter 22, verse 2 says that David became commander over these 400 men who were distressed, bitter, and broke. The question comes to mind is why? I mean, why would God send David these ragtag group of men to lead? Was this just some random detail in our story, or was God doing something here? I believe it's safe to say that God orchestrated this as an opportunity for David to grow in leadership. The experience that David gained ruling this motley crew would provide would prove to be extremely valuable when he became ruler of all Israel. In fact, this band of 400 men formed the nucleus of what would become David's kingdom. I find it ironic that King Saul's lack of leadership is actually what paved the way for David's ascension. It was King Saul's administration that caused these 400 men to actually become defectors. And it was also King Saul's injustice towards David that marked him out as the leader. You know, history is full of stories, story after story, of God putting his leaders at first in the hands of someone who's ungodly, but then raising them up to accomplish great things for his name's sake. In a short time, David's leadership skills would be on full display as he would go on to transform 
this band of outcasts into a very effective and loyal military force. Actually, later, we'll get there soon when Pastor Scott gets to 2 Samuel, these 400 men would become known as David's mighty men who would be willing to do anything for their leader. That's the way God works. He takes something that seems so random at the time, yet years later, when you look back, you see exactly what God was doing. It should give us great confidence that God's at work, even in the minor, minor details of your life. There's not a circumstance that you've encountered or that has happened by chance. God's providence does a work in your life, even in your times of desperation. The second way I see God's providence on display is in a single verse that I purposely did not draw much attention to earlier. It's 1 Samuel 22, verse 3. Here, God's providence is on display in working through David's ancestry. The text informs us that when David wanted a place of refuge for his parents, he went to Moab. But why Moab? Why would David go to a foreign city for shelter for his parents? Do I need to remind you that David has Moabite blood in his veins? Not too long ago, Pastor Scott preached through the book of Ruth. And you remember how the book of Ruth ends? Ruth and Boaz has a son named Obed, who was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. That makes Ruth David's great-grandmother. If you recall, she was from Moab. Now, I'll admit, this passage does not make that dogmatic connection between David, Moab, and his great-grandmother Ruth, but I do think it would be unwise to dismiss the connection altogether. Why else would the king of Moab be so willing to assist David? If it's, it's not as if Israel and Moab have always had the best of conditions with each other. They've been on the best of terms with one another. They certainly don't have the best relationship in the Old Testament. However, if David's connection with his heritage is the reason why the king of Moab is so willing to provide protection for his parents, then it sheds great light on how God's providence works. Over a century before David was ever born, God was directing events so that David could one day appeal to the king of Moab in his day. That means all of Naomi's trials, the death of her husband and sons, Ruth's insistent faithfulness, Boaz's random field, all of this was working together to accomplish his purposes they could have never imagined. The point as is that God was at work in it all. Old Naomi, Naomi could never have imagined that her sufferings would bear so much fruit for one of her descendants over a century later. What this means for us is that when you find yourself in a, in a desperate time or in a state of desperation like David, you can be sure that God knows, and he's already been at work in your life to meet your needs. It may be that a hundred years ago God was doing something. Maybe it's a hundred days ago God was doing something. Maybe it was just yesterday. But God orchestrates events in your life in order to arrange the circumstances so that he can provide you hope in your desperation. The truth is there's no one here going through something that God is not aware of. We can have hope in the midst of our desperate times because God is sovereign and he orchestrates all circumstances to accomplish his will. And we know the Bible teaches that he works all of it together for the good of those who love him. The third way I see God's promise on display is in Doag's evil act. You might be thinking, now, how in the world could that be? That doesn't make sense. However, what you might not realize is, is that 
Saul's wicked, wicked verdict and Doag's murderous action actually fulfilled the word of God against Eli spoken nearly 50 years earlier. All the way back in chapter 2, verse 1, Samuel, first Samuel, God pronounces judgment on the household of Eli because of his wicked son and because of his failure to correct his sons. Look at the Lord's words to Eli with me in 1 Samuel 2, uh, 31 through 33. This is what God says. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all of the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. You see, as evil as King Saul's desire was and as heinously evil as Doeg's action was, nevertheless, they were happening to fulfill God's word, to fulfill God's judgment on the household of Eli. Even the fact that Doeg happened to be detained in the tabernacle that day to, to witness the conversation between Ahimelech and David, if he had not been there, there would be nothing to report. And if there was nothing to report, then the priest would not have died. You know, um, God was orchestrating all these events. God is truthful to fulfill his word in every detail. Doeg killed all the priests that day but one, just as the scripture so clearly states what happened. Only Abiathar was left to weep his eyes out and grieve his heart before David. Now I'll admit, this is a very tough theological pill to swallow. Some of you might be thinking, doesn't it, that doesn't seem right. How can God providentially ordain all these actions that take place and yet at the same time not be responsible for the evil. You know, that could be a sermon series in itself. And I don't want to get too far into the weeds, but I do think it's helpful to look at just two other scripture passages that address this concept. For instance, many of you are familiar with the story of Joseph and his brothers. You know, his brothers were very jealous. They hated him. They wanted to kill him. And they did him wrong by casting him into a pit and later selling him into slavery. Uh, they, they did an evil against their brother. But through a crazy series of events, Joseph ends up becoming second in command in Egypt. And when a famine, famine hits the land, his brothers come searching for food and end up standing right before their brother Joseph. And they are frightened. But Genesis 50, 20 says this. Joseph says to his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This does not say, this text does not say that God merely reacted or used his brother's evil, uh, but rather that God meant it. The same word that was used for the action taken by the brothers. The point is, in this story, we have a combination of evil deeds brought about by sinful men who are rightly accountable for their sin and the overriding providential control of God whereby his own purposes were accomplished. Both are affirmed just like they were in our text this morning. The same idea holds true when we look at the most evil deed in human history, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. When Peter and John were released from prison in Acts 4, this was the confession of the early church in Acts 4, 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, 
both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The church here is saying that Herod and, and the Jews and the Gentiles and Pilate, they were all responsible for the death of Jesus. And they're going to be held accountable for their actions. But at the same time, they were only doing what God had predestined to take place. The people involved were not forced by God to act against their wills. Rather, God brought about his plan through their willing choices, and they are still responsible. How God combines both his providential control with our willing choices, the scriptures do not fully explain. But if we want to be faithful to the teaching of all of scripture, we need to accept both truths. This truth is clear in scripture, even if mysterious. It is the plain teaching of scripture, though it's not simple. Although our text this morning had a sad and disturbing ending, I'll admit, the character of God in his providential way should give us great confidence. To know that God always upholds his word and brings his word to pass should give each and every one of us great hope. That means that God will not back out or fail to fulfill the good promise he has made to those of us in Christ. We can rest assured this morning that he will do all that he said he will do, and we can take that to the bank. That's what our text teaches us this morning. It teaches us a lot about God's mercy and God's providence. I want to close this morning by having you look back at the final verse of our passage. Chapter 22, verse 23, says, David tells Abathar, the lone surviving priest, Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safe keeping. Here David is offering temporal salvation to this man who came running to him. But in doing so, David's a, a type or typifies the son of David, Jesus Christ, who can offer permanent salvation to all those who come running to him. You know, the, the refuge that each and every one of us need is not from the King Saul's of this world or the Doeg's of this world who can kill the body. What we really need is refuge from the wrath of God. Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Thankfully, though, it was God himself who provided us refuge by sending his son to die a sacrificial death for those who would trust in him alone for salvation. Just as the 400 outcasts in our story fled to David in the cave, we need to realize that the world offers us nothing in comparison to having Christ. I'm sure it was a costly decision for those 400 men to leave their homes and to join David in the cave. But the peace and joy that they got with being with David far surpassed the hardships involved. The same is true for all, for all of you, and, and myself included, who by the grace of God leave Satan's kingdom for Christ's kingdom. Friends, flee to Christ today, for in him we find safety and the grace of God in Christ. Let's pray. Dear Father, I... Uh, I pray for two different kinds of people this morning. I pray for those who are in you, who know you as personal Lord and Savior, but yet they find themselves in a, a dark and desperate time in their lives. I pray that you would use this text to encourage them in mighty ways, that they would be people who are relying on your mercy, that they would see how you're working in and through all the circumstances of their life 
for their good. And then, Father, I pray for those out there this morning who may not know you. I pray that you would, by your Spirit, be moving in their heart, that they would come to Christ for safety, that they would leave this world behind and come to Christ who can provide them with the refuge that they need. We ask that you would do this by your Spirit's power. In his name we pray. Amen. 